Dean, and welcome to You, Me, Us, Now. And if you've been listening, you know this is a show about people who try to change things. My guests to date are usually traditional activists. They get in a room with people. They talk about what's important to them. They find common cause. They decide on their tactics, and they, they go out and, and try to achieve their ends. That's the You, Me, Us, Now, the sitting around together to talk about what's important to them. But this show's a little different for me because my guest today, Charles Medetti, is a writer, and he tries to change things, but his tactic are his words and what he writes. Now, the song I started with, Stranger in a Strange Land by Leon Russell, it's not about the science fiction novel. And the reason I picked the song, Charles and I had a great conversation yesterday, and maybe this is why I feel an affinity for Charles, is that you look at things as they are, and it seems normal to everybody else, but when I look at them, or when Charles look at them, it seems strange. How do you make the strange normal? How do you prod people to reimagine what the world can be and do something different? You know, for me, it was as simple as riding a bicycle sometimes. Hey, you can ride a bicycle. It's not so strange. We can do something about climate change, and we can't accept that everything needs to be the same forever. Well, Charles takes, in my opinion, takes this looking at the world a different way thing to an entirely different level than I ever did. People who read him in our local Alternative Weekly, The Stranger, occasionally say he's just trolling the whole city. For example, he's written that we have to learn to love potholes because anything that makes driving experience miserable is good for society. He talked about transforming our biggest office builder into micro-apartments, a, a city within a city. He thinks we should pay people to walk. Charles, I'll, I'm just going to jump right in here. Pick one. It looks normal to complain about potholes, but if you look at it in another way, it looks kind of odd to complain about them. And that's what I'm trying to force people into a situation where they reconsider how they think um, the city works or what is natural about the city. I mean, and that's you know what I mean. I just want to bring that out. You think I'm trolling you, but <laughs> just stop. I mean, could could you be honest? I think that anything that makes traffic or the driving experience an impossible or horrible is actually, in the larger picture, a good thing because it makes you consider other alternatives to the car. And I can't understand why that rational, that larger rational or rationale, should be uh, is not should 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 be unseen. It should be upfront to the smaller, simpler, and almost not as useful, long term wise, the rationale of fixing potholes. Right, and so to me, if you could have imagined traffic engineers, I would say I've written this before, and anybody was upset about it. I think traffic engineers should be the enemies of their own profession, right? They should be undoing their profession. Like the best traffic engineer is the worst traffic engineer you could imagine, right? Because they would just be making things horrible for cars, right? <laughs> and that would be the best. If you look at the larger rational, right? The rational of the larger picture, you would say that is actually the best traffic engineer we ever had, right? The one who made driving happier, you know, and flowed well and all this stuff. And we just burned. And we, we all said, oh, let's go back on the road because it's now flowing and it's, there's no stoppages and so forth and so on. If that happened, then we'd say that was actually, in the larger picture, the worst person, the worst engineer the world ever had. Well, this is interesting for a number of reasons. One reason it's interesting is um, I was accused of waging a war on cars, which I adamantly denied. I, I preferred to, to have my motivations understood of I wanted to make it safer. I wanted to address climate change and, and I wanted our roads safe for everybody. 
but, but Charles, you look like you're ready. You're ready to launch the war. You're yes. ready to go. No, I, I think they should be pride in saying, if this man says, you're waging a war on cars, you say, of course I am. What do you think I'm doing? <laughs> I mean, do you know public transportation was the main form of, uh, of, of movement for most Americans until the 1950s? It's not even that old, not that far away. So we're not talking about something that is like unheard of or unknown, right? Cars are a very recent event in society, and we can undo them as quickly as they did themselves or the way, as, as quickly as they worked themselves into our world. I mean, it, and it's not that long. For the most part, most of life, human life, has been about life without cars. And I just don't understand why we should, why we should suddenly become defensive when we say, oh, ah, this is not a war on cars. Uh, it's actually, we're actually trying to make sure that we give people options and all this stuff. Just say, no, we can no longer afford as a society to maintain all of the, uh, uh, all of the aspects of car culture, which are extremely expensive. I actually think, and you're, 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 you're a person who I thought was a sort of physical person, a person who was really aware of, of spending, Right. Yes. And, and it sort of stuns me that nobody actually says what it costs to maintain all of this for cars. Right. Well, you you'll you'll enjoy another episode that I recently recorded. I'm going to get it up soon with uh, Charles Marone of an organization called Strong Towns. Mm-hmm. And uh, he yes. is the traffic engineer of whom you speak. Yes. Which is the one who says that the free flow of vehicles is, in fact, not the highest priority for roadways. It should be safety. It should be economic fatality, and we should do the math on the costs of, of the doing cost. so. Right. Right. Now, what's what's pretty interesting is is that Charles is uh, from Brainerd, Minnesota, probably started life as a Republican. Right. He now claims he's nonpartisan. I believe that you are a proclaimed Marxist or socialist. Yes. You grew up uh, in Africa. And I've had a really interesting youth that has then brought you to Seattle. Tell us a little bit about your background, Charles. I'll tell you my background. Well, first of all, I want to say I, I love, you know, the, the website. you got to give me the name. Strong again. Towns. Strong Towns. That website is great. And, of course, um, the, 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 the idea that essentially suburbs and also I would even argue car infrastructure is essentially a Ponzi scheme. Basically, someone has to, uh, has to pay the bill. The government actually thought that eventually private enterprise would pay the bill, but they're not. But eventually, someone has to pick up the tab. And uh, we're finding out that uh, the, the maintenance and the costs are larger than anybody expected. And there isn't a kind of market that can sustain it. Well, the, right? the costs are usually, have historically, costs of new infrastructure are picked up by developers or right. picked up by the federal government. Yes. But the long-term maintenance costs are That's- left with the local, local cities. And as I discovered as mayor, those maintenance costs... Are they, they add up and they add up and, and they pile up, right. right? And and we are now in the era where, well, in our city, a couple of the oldest pieces of infrastructure, the Alaska Way Viaduct, our right. first highway, right. 520, one of our first bridges over Lake Washington, a long floating bridge, need to be replaced at the cost of billions of dollars. And we're not even talking about the pipes and the, the sewers and the electrical lines and everything else that's, you know, getting 50, 60, 75, right. 100 years old that needs... Right. Replacement. And that's all in the localities. The state and the feds aren't really picking up the, or the developers aren't picking up the cost of maintaining what they built for us in the first place. All they want to do is build it. That's what the government wants to do. They want the project and it'll do it. If it's a sewer or whatever it is, just give them a, a, you know, they'll say, just tell us what you need. They'll do that with the, with the, 
goal that they're gone, actually, after it's done. And that you are the ones who, you know, who have to foot the, the expenses that follow. Now, 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 this reading of, um, of infrastructure was, was by a Marxist. No, but no, by, by a Republican, essentially. Right. right? And they, they were looking for pork, right? And they were actually examining it with honest eyes what is really going on with uh, infrastructure development in the USA. How did we get this freeway system? How do we get all these aspects? How do we build this way? That's what they were looking at. Right. And they discovered, no, there's a real core problem here. Now, you could say to me, um, I'm a Marxist, and I'll come in and say, I agree with this Republican because he understood that capitalism is essentially about socialism, right? That's what he, that, that was the conclusion he came to because ultimately the bill has to go to the people. And when the bill has to go to the public purse, be it a municipal right purse or be it a state purse or a federal purse, it still ends up with the people at the end of the day, right? So the market actually benefited in the interim, right, as developers and so forth and so on, for all this stuff which ultimately cost the public purse. And, and to me, I, I think there's a lot of things in the society where we don't give this, I, this, this focus on, like, how much does it actually cost? Here, and who pays? And who pays? And I say this to people as a Marxist, no, I, I'm with anybody who wants to talk about the market, anybody who wants to talk about, about where the money's going, who's good. I want to say who pays at the end of the day. This yes. is why I actually think when we talk about gun control, I think that's a, that's a horrible argument. Get rid of it. Let's talk about the cost of maintaining a society that has lots of guns. Yes. Let's talk about how much it costs. Who's going to actually pay for those shootings? We no, know who pays. Yeah, who pays? And that's what I want to do. I want the accounting. I don't want to know anything about how many dead people are caused by guns. Tell me how much it costs for us to pay for people who are not insured or whose insurance will not pay the full cost of owning or uh, of, of, right. of, of discharges by guns by accident or willful or so forth and so on. I want to know who pays. And, in the, and if we bring that up, someone, we say as a public, we don't want this bill on our lap. So who's going to pay? Who's going to, who's going to foot this bill? Well, in and, some in and, some respects, it seems like you're arguing for a more pure form of capitalism, absolutely. in which you would no. internalize the external costs no, and make the right. make the person who causes the costs right. bear the cost. No, and and to me that is, I mean, because I would say I am talking capitalism, right? Because if the insurance companies are not going to cover you, I don't think the state should should be propping up, you know, right. gun 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 manufacturers and their and their and their profits. That's ridiculous. Someone, you know, if seriously, if someone in a home has a gun and it's discharged because they didn't take care of it or they weren't doing the proper safety stuff and one of their one of their children or whatever right. it is, is 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 injured in the consequences as a consequence, well the state should not pay that bill. It should not pay that bill. And yet it is. So if you go even to the hospital, I went I went to the hospital in Tacoma, the main hospital there, right? And I spoke to the nurses, and they told me, indeed, they have to take in people who do not have insurance but have gun wounds, right? Of course. And so we that's, pay. That's right? the broader that's, health insurance That's thing. the broader, yes, right. And it happens here at, uh, at, uh, at, at Harborview as well. They actually, I think there was one person who actually gave up the sum, I think it was $11 million or so alone for Harborview, wow. just dealing with the costs of, uh, of having this free-for-all, this, this unrestricted gun market, right? And so I'm not saying, no, I won't give you the restrictions that you worry about, which is you want to own a gun. Go and have the gun, but you must pay. 
Charles, if I ever run for office again, I am taking this with me and figuring out my next platform based on this theory of dealing with guns. But you have totally hijacked the format of my show because I I have a rhythm. I have a set rhythm in which I like like my guests to know who they're talking to and how they came to be this this person (laughs) with such strong opinions who wants to tell us about, about everything, really. Well- where did you come from, Charles? I'm from Zimbabwe <laughs> originally. I was born. I was, was born in an African-only uh, hospital uh, in what was the mining, the mining town in in Zimbabwe. It was called uh, Kwekwe, and my parents were teachers. And my father excelled in a, as a as a student. He got a he got a, uh, a scholarship to come and study in the United States of America. And so uh, we moved to Nashville, Tennessee first, and then. Um, he went to do his graduate work uh, with my mother at that time, and they both went to do graduate work in Washington, D.C. Now, what happened is I had an aunt in Seattle who lived here. Weirdly enough, she was sponsored by the Nordstroms, and I would spend summers in Seattle. My parents would call the Capitol Hill closed, and all the congressmen and the senators would fly back to their states. My parents would call the office and say, could you take our children with you? <laughs> That's very clever to get a flight out. To, and would the congressman say yes? Yes, they never said no. And I, I, my, my thing was, like, as I said, I always laugh, it was a great photo opportunity to have two African kids right, <laughs> flying with the Do you senator. remember the congressman who you, you know, flew I, back I with? I actually did. And you know, I wish, and I was stupid not to bring their name, but... Um, it was uh, it was a senator, it, definitely a senator in 1980 when I flew yes. one of the two senators, and I and I'm almost certain it was the Republican because yes. I, that's what we, we had. And then the other one was uh, 77 was a was a congressperson. So I, I came to Seattle, and I um, go back again to the East Coast. And then around 1980, there was a war in our country for independence. It was for it was for black power or black rule, right, or or self determination, and we won the african the black africans won and uh, we returned back to the zimbabwe in 1981 how old were you i was 12 years old so you you so you spent a lot of your childhood in dc in dc yes. but then from age 12 on you to, were i was in africa for yeah. how long until I was, until i was 20 and so i was so my teen years were in uh in africa and um and i my high school education was there as well and I, my Reagan years were in Africa. I was spared. <laughs> my, my Reagan years were working for a U.S. congressman in D.C. Now, when we spoke yesterday, I mean, we, I, I tried to tee this topic up in, in the introduction. I don't know how well I did it. But right. the topic was this idea of seeing things with different eyes. Right. And you described to me yesterday an experience that you had in visiting Scandinavia, where all of a sudden you saw things with different eyes. Yes, yes. You know, weirdly enough, um, I must admit, okay, I tell you that I'm a Marxist, and I say this. This is why I'm a, everybody will say, like, oh, Charles is not a real Marxist. I can understand why people say this. Only because um, when I say I'm a Marxist, it means I, I take capitalism seriously. That's what I mean, essentially. So if you read Marx, you're actually reading Marx not to like for a solution to capitalism. You're reading him because he's thinking about it, and he's trying to explain how it works. And this, to me, is the real value of his. Of his. It, it, he, if you Anybody who reads Marx and ends up with, we're going to change society in this way uh, for, or for that purpose is making a big mistake. That's not at all in Marx. I mean, really, if you, if, you, if you read Marx, you'll see he's talking about 
the, the utopia will mean I can become a fisherman or whatever. I mean, it's not very serious stuff. But it's thinking about why is it we live in a society like this? So in Zimbabwe, when I was uh, growing up as a teen, uh, I was against the Marxist government, which was black African, because I thought they were actually hampering um, entrepreneurial development, right? There are a lot of black African businessmen who I thought were being, like, in a way, not supported by the, 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 the government. And it had, it had this notion that it's going to implement Marxist or socialist program when there wasn't uh, an economic base to support such a program at all. So I was actually not on the side of the Marxist government in Africa. But then I flew to London, and in London I saw the consequences of, of neoliberal, of, of Margaret Thatcher's rule, which was a lot of poor people on the streets. I couldn't believe the poverty in London. I couldn't believe how rich the city was. I saw London when I, you know, just at that age, right, you're, 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 you're late. Your mind teens. is open. You're, you're so open. And I remember the shock of, of like, how could, how could you live? Because I was coming from Africa which was so poor, right? When, when I knew that there wasn't, you know, there wasn't this kind of um, financial, or the government didn't have the resources to support its poor, right, in a, in a, in a, in a kind of respectable way, right? But you mm -hmm. go to London, you can't justify the poverty, right? You, there was just no excuse for it, right? And I stood there just confused. And I'd walk to, to the West End, and I'd see people sleeping on the streets or, you know, or homeless people. And it just, it just boggled me, right? And uh, then I got into a plane because I, I, I was lucky to, uh, to, 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 to get a ticket to visit to Sweden. And this was, again, that period. And I, and I saw, arrived in Stockholm, and strangely enough, of course, there were no poor people on the street. So this is a rich society that somehow was sharing its wealth a lot better than I saw in England. So if you look at that, if you triangulate what I saw, if you look at Harare, if you look at London, and you look at Stockholm, right, if you take those trips, if you, make, if you made those movements in the late 80s, you'd come to the similar conclusion that I had, which is that... That there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way, right, yes. Yeah. Z Z Harare should not end up where London is. We should figure out how, if we are going to, and if we want to become a rich society, we should figure out how to become a social democratic one, one where wealth is shared in such a way that's, you know, that is, that is, that is, not, that is not irrational. That's what I found in London was irrational. The, the scarcity of the poor there was not a real scarcity, right? That's another thing I tell people. Like, we, I live in a society, you go around here, and the scarcity, is, the, the scarcity is manufactured. It's not a real scarcity. If I'm hungry, it's because I can't buy food. It's not because there's no food. If you're in Africa, you actually, it doesn't matter if you got money or whatever. If there's no food to be bought, you're still yes. hungry. And so there is this natural scarcity and there is this artificial scarcity. So you have to say to yourself when you're in the West, and you can only see this uh, if you're coming from a poor country, that if you say, um, why are you poor? You have to understand that if it is in somewhere like London or Seattle, it is, uh, it is culturally induced. Uh, these observations inspired you. Yes, and that, that was a young man, and that, that set me off to, that sent me on the, on the journey I'm still on right now. And what is the journey it. that you were on? Well, the journey was to, was to, was to come to terms with, with the world, because, you know... Um, How I did you come to writing, though? Well, the journey was actually reading Native Son by Richard Wright. Really? That was the first, That was the book that transformed me, and that was right after <laughs> this trip. I read about 
about Bigger Thomas and Chicago and the slums. And also there's a Marxist character in the book. And all of this, all of these elements, the urban issue, the, the racism, the landlord, the, you know, the, 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 the corruption, the relationship between um, the white uh, do-gooders, those who, those who want to who help society and those who are blind about society who are white as well. And all of these things were, were sort of put into play in the book in a way that made sense to me really quickly. And after that book, I mean, I read it almost twice. I remember uh-huh. quite, I was quite moved. And then I said, okay, now I've got an idea. Writing is what I'm going to do. Um, reading is what I'm going to do. And uh, what I want to do, um, what my goal is, what my journey would be, is to get a better and better sense of the world that I live in. Like to know exactly or honestly or come to some close, something that resembles the truth of a situation. Do you feel like you're working for change? Are you trying to change yes, things? Yes, absolutely. Because I think that that with if I was to say that this okay, I have to tell you is something really important again. And you know, you, I'm you tell me. Yes, I'm I'm, I'm, into, I'm interested in philosophy. Yes, right? and, and and um, there's there's a there's a real problem with philosophy that you it's it's not that we're dreamers or they're dreamers when you read Socrates or Hegel or something like this. It's not that so much that the philosophers are. They have their heads in the, in the clouds. The thing, the problem is that we are constantly looking at the world and imagining what it ought to be. So you have the world as it is and the world, world that ought to be. And the problem is you don't want to get so stuck in this gear that says ought, right? Ought, ought all the time. And philosophers often end up in this ought world, right? Ought to be. And that becomes incredibly unproductive. I think it's, it hurts the soul. It hurts you as a person because you're never happy about the you never find the moments in the world that you live yes. that are that are that have you know that have the brighter side like you know you never you're, you're always you're always never in your world you're always in this world that does not exist the world that ought to be so what and, world should you be in so I want to be I want to be I, I do believe there's a world that I want to if I say I want to change the world it's because yes I also come from this philosophical position of the world that ought to be, but I still want to be in the world that I'm in now, right? And so obviously I am for change because I still want to get to the world we ought to be in. So, so what is your mechanism of change? What's um, your theory my, of change? My theory what are your of change, tools for change? My tools for change, and I, and I sort of said, my tool for change is I, I'm pro-social engineering. Right, I know, I know. Everybody in the USA hates the word social engineering. Right? I mean, when it came out of uh, you know, we were almost haunted. We always think that of a Stalinist image. And I said, I said, my my favorite thing is that uh, Stalin. I I said this to you yesterday. I said Stalin is the one who said that writers are the engineers of the human soul. Right? Actually, he he got that from Yuri Yuri Oleshi. He got it from Yuri Oleshi. I didn't realize this until I, I, I looked it up last night, and I said, oh, that wasn't Stalin's phrase, but engineer of the human souls is what he called the writer. Yes. And so I take this quite seriously because I take social engineering seriously. I don't think it's this dark and terrible thing because everybody wants to believe that they are, they're making their own decisions. They're not being manipulated by those at the top and this sort of thing. Right. But it's not true. I think that there's a lot of social engineering. We accept it right now in terms of like if you watch a car commercial – Right? What do they show us all the time? They're showing us roads that are open. They never show us traffic. Yeah. Right? They show us, you know, 
the the breezing, open road, right? Yeah, yeah, breezing cliffs. through the city, right? And so, to me, yeah. this is social engineering because this is not true, right? When you buy a car, yeah. you don't exist by yourself, and you don't move that fast in the city. You know, there's a there's a last night was a terrific traffic jam. How come that's not in the ad? Because that is some bad social engineering. Because you're going to buy your car with the idea of what you saw in this advertisement. I would say I'd rather I'd rather ban those kinds of images, like we ban them on you know cigarette advertisements because they don't tell us the consequences or the dangers or the realities of that product. Yeah. So we're not being told the realities of what happens when you own a car, which is it needs to be parked almost all of the time. And parking is an extremely expensive thing for society to sustain and so forth. And then you have to drive it around in traffic that almost never moves, right? You're going to be late to things and so forth and so on. Yeah. And then you're adding more traffic to already a bad situation. And yet, yeah. Nobody tells you this. No one tells you this. So I'm just saying, but then, but the, what you receive is this other image, and that's clearly social engineering working in favor of this particular um, interest, yes, and and so forth. And so forth. so, I'm so just saying, advertising is social engineering out yes, of the hell of us, and yes. you're taking it all on. You're going to do it, Charles. I, I'm I'm the one, and I and I believe <laughs> I. And so I I say let's not fear social engineering. And and as I said to you yesterday, uh, I grew up when um, the advertisements about the environment had a huge impact on me, Yes, right? There was that famous one of the Native American who sees the garbage yes. landscape. Let yes. me tell you, I will never forget shivering at that image and, and seeing it tears. I mean, we might think of it as corny now, right? We might be a little more, right, a little more um, cynical about it. But for when I first saw it, it changed my behavior. And we need advertising. We need that kind of information because we need to see the, the the real tragedy of the way we're treating um, nature. Well, you're get, you're getting right at the heart of why I why I believe fossil fuel divestment is an important tactic Absolutely. in the climate movement. Yes, part of the reason it's an important tactic is is because we've been led to believe we have no other choice but to live this way, and it's really hard because in fact we have lived this way for a long time. We have used oil and gas and coal for a long time. We've benefited from it in many ways, even as it's harmed us in other ways. That's right. Yes. This is now, by the way, where the oil companies are going, is we have no other choice but to yes, keep using it. That's true. And, and part of the fossil fuel divestment movement is just to try to shock people into thinking, no, we do have a choice. If we re- First, we have to recognize we have a choice before we can actually make the choice. Yes. You actually have to believe you have one. Yeah. And that's the point of the fossil fuel divestment movement is to try to get people to say, well, hold it. Should we take fossil fuels out of the ground and use them? I think a lot about change. This is part of the reason I did do right. this show. I think a lot about change and theories of change and how do you get people to imagine a different future and throw in to, to make it happen. One of the things I did was, you know, because I'd been really active in my neighborhood trying to figure out how to get sidewalks built. And I discovered all the money was going to highways, not to walking and biking right. and transit, right. right? So how do I change that? So I got into that. Um, climate change, I've already mentioned, as being... Right being important. All of these things led me to form a nonprofit, which I called Great City, which was painting a vision of what a city could be that was economically sustainable, environmentally forward-looking, and and equitable to people. So it was an entire vision. And I'm using this to segue into this topic of urbanism, which is what Great City was, was pretty interesting. You're an urbanist too. Yes. And I, I wrote an article the other day for a local alternative paper called The Weekly on what is urbanism and are urbanists winning or losing. And I'm a little concerned the term is so broad that maybe it doesn't have any meaning, but I took a shot at defining it. Right. You're an urbanist. I, I believe I am. 
Yes. What is an urbanist? <laughs> I did. And what is urbanism? Yes. Well, right now, we, we could almost say uh, urbanism, and I, my gosh, I mean, I was trying to figure out your definition. You had a, I wonder, there's a key that you had in the definition. But go with yours first. Um, my definition is, is two parts. My definition is, is uh, urbanism is the acceptance of the fact that one's life is heavily dependent on strangers. Right, that strangers are play um, important roles in 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 my in my um, in my in my movement around the city, in my in my in the way I eat and what I or even just eating itself in uh, in all of the all all of these functions that I, I've I've turned them over to strangers and um and they are and I trust them I have to trust them and for the most part they are trust they are trustworthy. And my argument is that it's not simply that they're being paid to do these um, functions that makes them um, trustworthy. I actually say, as an urbanist, is that I find that the, it's an it's an, it's, an, it's a human. So, how would you contrast that with rural or suburban yeah, well, settings? Well, well, then, because in that case, you're, more of your life is dependent on people you know. And that's what I'd say is a rural situation, right? Because actually, in the rural now with the internet, you can't use the rural urban distinction because they're consuming, they, they consume similar The lines cultures. have been blurred so Blurred, yes, right. But you would say in the rural setting, people yes. tended to know each other. Tended to know each other, yes. And, and they, they relied on people they knew. They knew, and also they're much more self-reliant in a way that I'm not. Right. right? And, I, and that would be to me the, 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 the big definition, the main definition. And the reason why dependence is important is that we're finding it now, um, we're finding that uh, sort of self-reliance is really not really going to work with this many people on Earth. We actually have to start sharing and becoming dependent and more dependent on, on, on others to do things. And we're finding that to be, you know what I mean? Whereas urbanism is this, because is, I could say that in the past, urbanism wasn't as um, connected. Like if you read Jane Jacobs, and, and there are elements where she's thinking about the environment, so but it's not really what she's after. Jane Jacobs is really makes an argument for a kind of city that is, what she thinks is is culturally rich, yes. right? She's she's looking for the ballet of the street. That's Jane Jacobs, and you know, and but now I think urbanism has gone beyond that. Now we see it no longer simply a quality of experience, right? We see it now as a mode of um, uh, uh, organizing uh, ourselves, organizing yes, in a yes. realistic manner, with the challenges that we are faced with. Right. right. You know that's, what I mean? That's certainly how I viewed it. And that's what it is. And so to me, it's no longer this, this yeah, it's no longer just this flaneur. An, a, a, an aesthetic choice. Yes, that's right. Yeah, we, like we love the flaneur, the one who walks around the street, right? This 19th century urban hero. It's not that anymore. I have to admit, whenever I heard that stuff, it always bugged me. Well, yes, of course. It's limited. <laughs> you know, one, I used to love the flaneur. This is me. This is how I think, right? This is exactly. The flaneur is this person, this character in the 19th century in you know French European world, and, we, and, and, and it's a person who gets to stroll around the city, and it's funny that people don't understand strolling around the city is a certain privilege, right? Absolutely, that, maybe that's why it bugged me <laughs> it so bugged much. Right? Yeah, and I said you know in the USA we sort of in in the literature of this kind we always worship the stroller, right? Yeah, but you know um, the loitering, right? Suddenly oh, has this. Oh yes, yeah, loitering right. has a different sound. Has a different to it connotation, now, it? right? But yeah. it's also an urban experience, right? <laughs> they, they, when you say like, well, you know, blacks often are the ones like told oh, don't my. loiter, right? Yeah. And so oh, what happens? Yeah, right. What you can't because you can't stroll a city, you have to see the city from your 
In fact, well, if you walk around a certain kind of neighborhood, it might lead to a call from the police. Right, right. There are certain neighborhoods right, right, you should right. not stroll around. So loitering makes a lot more sense <laughs> considering where you are. Because then the, 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 the flaneur gets to discover the city, right? The loiterer, actually, the city comes to them, <laughs> passes yes. by them. And yes. I'm just saying that, you know, why don't we worship the loiter? You know, why do we have loitering laws uh, that are so harsh? And this is, let's think about this for a sec. But that's the problem with the flaneur. Is that they, they, they're not, they don't, it's not, it's, it lacks this political element that is that is problematic to me. But so, so returning to the thread of the yes. conversation, right. which was, urbanism as a, as a method of organizing society in a realistic way to move forward. That's right. Considering I, the, 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 the real challenges that we have. I mean, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to add another point here right. too, which is, is we talk about this, I'm, I'm going to give you a thesis and you can rebut it or right. agree with it, which is if ruralism is, you know, your neighbors right. and if urbanism is, you don't know them, but you have to trust them. Right. Sub- suburbanism may be, you don't have to know your neighbors and you don't have to trust them because you, you build a world as much as possible where you don't have to interact with others. Right. Suburbs are a catastrophe, no matter how you look at it. They're a social catastrophe. They're a cultural catastrophe. And they are now proving to be an environmental catastrophe, right? And unless we reconsider or reinvent what that what suburban life means, which is, I think, what the, um, what the new urbanist movement was trying to do, because they realized that the whole notion of community did not exist in the suburbs as because the suburbs was right. They were designed. They were actually designed to, in many respects, not all suburbs, by the right. way, you know, your classic yeah. inner ring suburb. That's right. The kind I grew up in on right. Long Island was actually oriented around a train station that took no. you downtown and was walkable. No. It was that next ring of no. suburbs yes. where you, where you got into a car in your cul-de-sac and then went into a parking garage and then went into a parking lot and you really manage to reduce your interactions with strangers or the other to a very, very high degree. Well, I want to bring this back now because I'm still really intrigued by your definition of urbanism. Right. So if urbanism is a way of organizing ourselves to address multiple problems, but our own human nature doesn't want to mingle too much with people or doesn't want to trust too much other people. Right. I mean, is, is then, this, yes, this, then, this starts to become an explanation for many of our problems right now. Right, exactly. But again, social engineering comes in here because social engineering made us believe that, uh, that we want to live away or separate or we don't, we don't want to uh, mingle or to, you know, to be dependent on, on others. Now, I have to tell you something really important. I, yes. It's, 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 it's sort of like the, it's the theoretical core for me. It's, it's, it's a very... It's a very socio-biological core, right? Because I want to know what kind of animal we are, right? How, how can we become, uh, how can an, an animal become an urban thing, right? Where we're clearly, we're primates. How do we become urban? How is that possible, right? Now, there's a great book. It's called Mother and Me. It's by a woman called, an anthropologist called Sarah Hurdy. And she opens the whole book by saying, do you know, every year, six billion people go into the sky, right? And... They land safely, <laughs> right? And nobody has chopped each other up. Right? No, they've, they've managed to figure out how to get along. And yes. there's a lot of rules associated with this. There's a lot of rules. As but we well yes, know. Right, yes, And in are, fact, this right. whole reclined seat, but, not reclined yes, seat, right. threatens to tear apart the fabric that's, of that's, that society. How in the world, if she asks, what kind of animal is this <laughs> that can do that? Six billion people. Not Most of them didn't cut each other up. You right. know, during the long flight, some of them 10 hours long. They landed happily. 
And he saw their loved ones afterwards. I know this passage. She's comparing it to another primate. Yes, the chimps. Right. And she says, if you look at, if you put chimps in a plane, they would be, you'd, you know, when they landed, there'd be body parts all over the place. <laughs> there'd be blood, all, you know, on the, on the seats. So they, what, they couldn't, so what, they couldn't what do type it. of primate are we? We are the tolerant primate. We're the primate that, this is why I tell everybody, it makes a lot more sense for us to be in a train because, or in a light rail because we can take it. This is, this is our gift. We can sit closely with others and we can tolerate it. And it's so bizarre that we do not take advantage of this wonderful natural gift that we can be in close quarters and still find a place, space for our own self or in our own heads and also not be, you know, irritable enough to turn violent. I mean, most animals couldn't or don't have the ability to have these kinds of experiences with their kind. So I and think so I think I think about similar things, Charles. I if you ever know I like to backpack. Right. And I'll go out with a group of five or six people. Right. And we'll be out in the wilderness with literally thousands and thousands of acres. Right. But when it's time for dinner, we will all sit close. Right. Yes. Because that is what people do yes. when we eat, is That's... we sit close to each other. Exactly. Closer than you would ever sit to somebody if you weren't no. breaking bread. No. Because and... when you break bread, you must sit closer for some reason. And nobody taught me that. Right. It just happens. Yes. And any society that suddenly tells us that community is li living... Uh, without others, uh, driving by yourself, because most people right. drive by them, so they don't drive with others. This is still a problem. I know Seattle improved, right, over the years. We have been improving we over the years. We have been improving, but the majority right. of Americans drive by themselves. I mean, uh, stunning. I mean, and then they get home, and they are locked up in their world, and they don't see anything outside of this, right? The, the, the screen goes on, and... That's about it. And this is, to me, what a catastrophe for me, for this kind of animal. What a waste of your resources. Okay, so I'm, the, I'm, I'm, I'm going down this roadway. Right. I'm going down this pathway, which is, my brother told me a story one time about somebody who had adopted a beaver. He adopted a beaver. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's a true story. I've looked on the internet again and again for this story because it right. really stuck with me. Right. And the problem was that the beaver kept running into the bathtub to block up the drain to create a pool. Oh. Even though it was like perfectly useless to him, but that's what beavers do. Right. So I keep asking myself, are we, you know, are we the beaver in the bathtub? Right. Bound to behave according to the way we've always behaved, oblivious to the environment around us right. and the fact that the environment is different. Or do we have the capacity to recognize who we are, change who we are, and adapt to it? Yes. Or not? Well, you know, I, I do believe in our cultural plasticity. I think that we're also the animal that can make changes. And this is a, both a plus and also could be a minus because it makes us vulnerable to bad social engineering. So if you look at something like the, I think the CEO of Shell, when confronted about the, you know, climate change and you know what, right. what, what, what can we do about that? He said he brought up, and I'm never forget it. I've never forget him saying this, and I'm sorry I can't remember his name, but he said he said he said, oh, um, we'll adapt to that. You know, humans are good at adapting to changing situations, and there you have it. 
You see, it's a good thing that we're able to adapt to changing situations. But you can see how, in this case, right? The adaptation he would like is we're just going to have to get used to get more to, heat and more storms that's and right. more hurricanes and it, more flooding. Unnecessarily. Simply because that they can sell the stuff to us and yeah. that they're and that they're and that their stockholders um you know you know get their, 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 get their, their profits their dividend, dividends and some of their profits this, this is all that you're asking us to make this enormous amount of change to not just our lives but the lives of generations ahead of us simply for this fact and you know and you very well know yes it's true um, humans are very gifted in this sense as well we're gifted at tolerating each other but we're also gifted we have the gift of of, uh, of of imagination and cultural plasticity that we can actually we can actually um, find solutions to different situations that are are before us or not before us. And that to me is the saddest thing. So the dam, it's sort of interesting to me about the deep the be- the beaver in the dam. That's sort of sad because it hasn't it hasn't quite have adapted. To, to, its, to its situation, it's situation. Right. or it's forced into a situation for right. which it's it's just not well suited. Yes, and, that's right. You know, we we've pushed ourselves, we've created situations for which we won't yes. be well suited. Yes, or we can adapt and change. Change. We right. have the capacity to change the world around us. Right. In fact, we are. Yes. And now we ought to change. And we have the gift of um, creating instincts. That's I, I'm a William James fan, and William James used to talk about our instincts. And what he said was, humans are not don't 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 don't, don't just have instincts. That they, you know, they, that they receive through genetics, but we have the ability to create instincts, right? To to make new instincts. So riding a bicycle, right? Yes, is now is an, is not an instinct that you would expect you know, or you could predict at all by looking at a human being. But look around you; people can just pick up a bike and instinctually, right, cycle, and that's a new instinct. And I think that this ability is is should is is is, is abused by those who are facing or do not want to change their ways, um, particularly when it comes to uh, the consumption of fossil fuels. This has been a great conversation. Both of us have the same weakness, I believe, right. really enjoying talking. Yes. And I fear we could do this for a very, very long time. So I, we could. I'm sorry. We could. To, yes. No, but we, you know what? This may not be the last opportunity. Maybe Best. I'll put you in a studio with Chuck Marone one day. And oh, we'll I'd see love what, to. Chuck Marone. That, that's his name. If you of strong him, towns. T- tell, him, tell him his website and his, uh, his thinking really had a big impact on me. We will do that. Yeah. So I open with a song. I chose Stranger in a Strange Land by Leon Russell, and you get to finish with a song. What song did you pick? Well, I picked a a song by a local band called Industrial Revelation, and it's called Amalia. Uh, It's a new song, and the reason why I picked it, not only because it's a very pretty song, I like pretty music, is because I, I love Seattle a lot. I really do. And... I, I, I think that the people who make art in this city, I want to be close to that art because I'm close to my city, right? I, very, I, still, I feel very strongly about the rhythms of my city because I know these artists live here. They know the climate. They know the character and the quality of the light. They know the sounds very well. And, that's, and the, the art that, that I like to be close to is the art that I think captures my experience in this city. 